I visited about 12 to 15 community radio stations in Nepal, India, Zimbabwe, South Africa, and Ecuador. Oftentimes by talking to community media makers, you're meeting some of the most passionate, involved community members who have seen so much, who are so knowledgeable and connected. And I, I just, I always loved seeing and kind of oftentimes being really, I was really lucky to be welcomed into those spaces and the culture around community radio is just beautiful, I think. On today's show, we take a trip around the world visiting community radio stations with freelance writer Julia Thomas, who utilized a Thomas J. Watson fellowship to spend an entire year from August of 2017 to August of 2018 visiting the people who make community radio in places like Nepal, community radio in India, in Zimbabwe, in South Africa, in Ecuador, from the mountains on down to the islands, the Galapagos Islands, community radio in the Galapagos Islands, today on Radio Survivor. Radio Survivor, we're here for the love of radio and sound. My name is Eric Klein, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Jennifer Waits. We're on the line with Julia Thomas, a former Watson Fellow and freelance journalist who is just back from around the world travels visiting community media outlets and talking to community media participants. And we're excited to talk to you specifically about what you learned visiting community radio stations in all these different places. Thanks so much for being on the show. Hi, Jennifer. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. So you visited Nepal, India, Zimbabwe, South Africa, and Ecuador. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious about what sparked your interest in traveling to see community media and citizen journalism in action around the world. What was that? What was that kernel that led you to endeavor, go on this endeavor? Yeah, definitely. Well, throughout college and even before then in high school, I'd always been, um, I'd been really involved with community media First at KSPC radio station in Claremont, where I went to college in California, but then I became really involved with my school's newspaper and saw reporting in action and how, as a weekly publication, we were covering five different schools. And I, as someone who was really curious about media, I tried as much as possible to, um, in the summers and outside of classes, gain experience with online outlets you know, TV channels where possible, newspapers, magazines, and in just learning about the media landscape in the U.S., I just was kind of continually astounded by how diverse all of the processes for telling stories were. And when, as a history major in college, I focused a lot on histories of Latin America and histories outside of the U.S., and in reading media about those places, I found that a lot of what people, you know, in the U.S. are reading about those places comes from foreign correspondents rather than local media. And I wondered, you know, how are local journalists actually telling stories to domestic audiences? How are they telling stories on more localized levels from their perspectives as people who are of and from that place? So I decided, I kind of came up with this idea for a project that would explore how in countries with immense amounts of diversity in terms of languages spoken, in terms of geography, religion, and ethnic groups, you know, what does that look like 
for alternative media outlets trying to represent different, you know, identities and people and voices. Um, so it really came out of kind of my experience exploring those different things as a college student. Cool. And and why was it important for you to include radio in that whole process? Um, I think in, in radio in large part because I, in when I began to research that project and, you know, uh, being part of a community radio, although very briefly at the start of college, I knew that in a lot of places, community radio was really a pillar for alternative media. And in talking to people when I was planning the project, they steered me towards making that a fundamental part of my project. And so that's kind of how it became a part of it. And then especially once I traveled to countries, it became really obvious that, you know, in understanding the alternative media landscape, it was essential to spend time at community radio stations. I was pretty intrigued. You wrote a piece about your time in Nepal. And in that piece, you talked about how you really wanted to focus on digital and radio-based mediums as opposed to TV news. Mm-hmm. Um, and and you said that you that those mediums center people's voices directly, you know, specifically yeah. digital and radio mediums. So I was hoping you could elaborate on that, on how how you think radio centers people's voices directly? Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, in Nepal, especially, I started my year there, and it actually hadn't been an original part of my plan. That's one of the beautiful things about the Watson is that it's so open to um, the foundation folks are really encouraging and allow you to follow your interests or the connections you make along the way. And so I ended up in Nepal, and when I got there, um, shortly after, connected with this radio station that was one of the first in South Asia. But community radio in Nepal really came to be when Nepal was becoming a multi-party democracy um, in 1990. And it became a way for people to express their views. Um, for a long time, the media there was a, a huge um, monopoly on the media by you know the state-sanctioned newspaper, and radio and television station, which is still going on today, um, Nepal TV. And so I think that I just saw in so many different ways in Nepal how um, stations were allowing people to, not just politicians or musicians or more elite members of society, but everyday people to come in and share their stories and also for people to share stories in their you know, native tongues. And in Nepal, that meant um, where there's so many different um, languages spoken in Nepal, a lot of community radio stations give space for people to, you know, speak in Newari or Tamang or one of the many different languages there, um, because the media in Nepal, of course, is primarily in Nepali. And so a lot of my project really allowed me to see how much community radio really allowed for stories that like the mainstream media, which was primarily focused on, you know, national politics, you know, community radio, you know, moves outside of that. It operates outside of the kind of national focus and goes into more localized and non-elite story storytelling and um, topics that perhaps wouldn't be in a newspaper, but can thrive and that people care about and that are so human. And you, you talk about the oldest community radio station in South Asia, Mm-hmm. How, how old is community radio in that part of the world? 
Um, in that part of the world, it's just over a few decades old. It um, Radio Sagarmatha, which was is the oldest community radio in South Asia, was founded in 1997. So it's had a pretty long history, and it's still um, it's still running and going strong in Kathmandu. But definitely also adjusting to kind of a big shift in Nepal, where especially in the capital city, a lot of people are going online now for their news and less people in urban areas are tuning into radio and so radio sagramata is and many others are adjusting to you know accommodate for their more you know their audiences that are now more online than you know tuning into radio and so like to back up a little bit can you tell me how many stations you visited on this kind of whirlwind trip and and where they were yeah, I um, I visited I think about twelve to fifteen radio stations. And um, do you want me to go into the the specific areas of each country, or just the overall the countries overall? Uh, maybe just the countries overall, just like a, a a brief snapshot for now. Yeah, I visited about um, twelve to fifteen community radio stations in Nepal, India, Zimbabwe, South Africa, and Ecuador. And in each place, I visited at least one, but oftentimes many more community radio stations whenever I could as part of my exploration of community media, grassroots media, more broadly in the country. And, and what sorts of things were you doing when you visited, you know, as you know, I tour radio stations as well. And yes. and probably we have different different goals with each of our projects, but I'm curious sort of what your goal was each time you visited a station. Um, whenever I visited a station, my goal was kind of to, it depended really, because in some cases I was going and had like a week to spend like really, you know, solely focused on being at a particular radio station. But sometimes it was more of an ongoing thing where I could spend, you know, a few weeks or a month, you know, going and volunteering and really being, you know, helping out with programming more or being a, in a lot of cases like shadowing or kind of being a fly on the wall, um, but my goal was to really talk to different members um, doing of the, who are working at the station and figure out, you know, kind of their the kind of work they do, what draws them to working in community radio, and what they enjoy about it, and gather sort of an understanding and history of the station through talking to people and you know sitting alongside um, the programmers. Um, you know, people are speaking on air or programs are being run. And just kind of understanding the fabric of um, these different stations. And how, how are stations different from KSPC, the college radio station that you had volunteered at? I know that's a huge question because you visited yeah. so many. Yeah, um, I think, um, well, and I should say, I mean, I haven't spent a ton of time at KSPC. It was pretty early on in college, but it did pique my interest. And so I feel like my knowledge of community radio in the U.S., it's funny, I'm I've come back since I've come back to the country. It's like this whole, it's like a new Watson kind of, you know, under, coming to understand all the complexities of it, um, which Radio Survivor is such an amazing resource for. But um, that's cool. That's cool that your travels have sparked your interest in community media in the United States. I love that. Oh, very much. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, yeah. It's, I mean, in coming back, and even while I was abroad, I feel like. In the past, I mean, there's just been a ton of really amazing developments, I think, in terms of resurgence and of 
community radio and low power FM stations, it seems like that's kind of a growing movement. And also there's a lot more regional solidarities between and collaborative work between local media outlets in different parts of the country. And so it was really cool to see that happening um, outside of the country and be like, wow, like this is happening, it's going on, it's growing. And then coming back, it's like a whole set of new questions to explore and be a part of. Yeah. I mean, with that community aspect, I, you know, I'm imagining embarking on, on this sort of fellowship. Um, how, how did you even figure out which stations to visit? I mean, that is, must've been such a wide open landscape for you to explore. And, and was it through connections within community media that you were able to get introductions at various stations? Yeah, it was usually through connections. Once I, oftentimes whenever I came into a place, I would try to have at least, you know, three kind of connections in within media in hand when I first arrived. But then it would really evolve. And the stations I went to depended on the will, you know, whether people were willing to um, speak with me or if they were open to me shadowing at the station or becoming involved as a volunteer. Um, so it really depended on who I met. But I also would do quite a bit of, you know, reading and poking around online and listening to programming and kind of, you know, depending on, I mean, I had a lot of different, depending on my curiosities within the country, like in India, for example, I was interested in seeing how a radio station was operating in a Muslim majority area of the country. And so kind of sought out a station that was doing just that. It was about six years old. It's called um, Alfazi Mewat. And um, it was run by a nonprofit that's based in New Delhi, but about an hour away, but in a pretty rural area of uh, the country. So I really kind of chose the stations I was going to based on like trying to get a balanced, trying to balance out my view of community media. And I'm really intrigued. You you did a project doing oral histories with journalists working at that community radio station, Alfaz and Mawat. Mm-hmm. Um, can, can you tell me more about, were you doing oral histories um, at that station for a particular reason? Perhaps the reason that you just explained that you wanted to learn more about that particular station's role in, in the media. Yeah, definitely. I um, I was interested in learning about how, you know, this relatively young community radio was like basically how, um, you know, listeners were connecting to it and how, you know, the programmers were building out, you know, the different stories they were doing in large part because in articles that I'd read online, this area of the country, um, so in the state of Haryana, it's even though... Um, Al-Fazimi Wat is um, within an hour, hour and a half of New Delhi. It's a pretty, a very rural part of the country. It's um, majority Muslim and women, because of that, it's a pretty conservative society and um, women have limited access to education. There's a high rate of illiteracy. And so this nonprofit called the Segal Foundation kind of decided to launch a community radio as part of an effort to um, you know, provide access to information, increase programming about, you know, agriculture and various different kind of social issues and in order to bring awareness to them. So um, when I spent time at the station, I was really struck by how um, 
I mean, it was it was evident that women were pretty limited in how they could participate um, in that. Uh, you know, there was one female reporter at the station, but there was I believe there was a member of her family was sick, and so she wasn't able to come. And I actually didn't get to meet her while I was there, but it was primarily hosted by a few male reporters, and um, a lot of the listeners who called into um, the radio station on the nightly broadcast, um, there were, it was always men. Um, and so the gender <laughs> dynamics and gender power dynamics were always, um, I mean, it was very male dominated. Yeah, I have, so, I have sad news. And that is that in the United States of America, community radio, um, the vast majority of callers are going to be men. So always men. Yeah. yeah. Um, and in fact, uh, I have some friends in community radio still who will explicitly say that women have, um, will be jumped to the front of the line no matter how many, you know, if they get five calls from men and one call from women, they'll still take the woman's call. Uh, yeah, well, because it's just few and, and far and, between. And that's in, um, yeah, that's in Northern California. Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, but then I would go out with, um, I had the chance to go out with um, two of the guys who uh, ran the station, so Rob and um, Fakat, and in talking to listeners, most of the people who spoke to us were women. And um, they were super enthusiastic about the radio programs. A lot of them, I mean, it was a range. Some women had been listening, you know, every day for a few years. Some were really new to the programs. But it just seemed like a lot of the listeners and a lot of the listeners were women, despite like the participation and um, things that we're seeing there. But something that was, this station did a, an incredible job of doing kind of deeply reported stories on kind of taboo issues like sexual assault. One thing they did was a male and reporter and female reporter over the course of a year went to um, kind of a, a primary or I guess it was a secondary school in the area and started doing these, you know, um, multiple times a week meeting with kids there and sort of doing education and outreach, but then eventually building enough of a relationship where that these kids felt comfortable opening up about issues related to sexual assault or sexual abuse, which are pretty rampant, but can't be talked about. And eventually students started sharing these stories and they built out radio programs around that, a multi-part series and disguised the kids' voices and changed their names so that they couldn't be identified on the radio and started airing these programs, which had, I mean, a topic like that had never been on the radio before. Wow. And it was really amazing to see how they were doing that and the kind of dedication to telling that story. And another, it it was just really powerful to see how much, you know, community care and, um, you know, outside, you know, even journalists from, Delhi or nearby areas wouldn't really be able to do that. But the fact that it was a community radio station that was doing that really speaks to, I think, the power of what Alfazi Miwad is doing. And uh, Julia Thomas, you're a freelance writer joining us from Little Rock, Arkansas, talking to us about your trip in uh, 2017, 2018, right? That's when you traveled the world visiting community radio stations? Yes, August 2017 to August 2018. And and you're just telling us now about this station in rural India, in a majority Muslim part of rural India near New Delhi. And um, you you were telling us about how uh, women are not the voices on the radio, but um, you met many women who are listening. I'm wondering if the people at the station 
are working at all and did you did you did you see them working at all towards changing that or um because you know in my in my imagination i wanted to say well you know it's going to be like six years from the beginning of that you know the station will have women's voices on eventually if they're allowed in the door because you said so many women are listening and it's community radio that's kind of the the excitement of community radio is that listeners can become voices on the air but um only if the doors are open. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I should say that um, the station is making, I mean, and from the beginning has made a huge effort to try to recruit women. But I mean, part of it, uh, the reason why there aren't more women on the staff is because it's such a challenge to a lot of women don't feel comfortable necessarily speaking on the radio or their families aren't, won't let them um, or their partners or husbands. And so it's not an issue really at all with um, the station not doing the outreach, but really just kind of the cultural kind of stigmas attached to, I mean, in a lot of ways, women working or women speaking on the media or sharing their opinions. That station in particular would have to create more programming with women's voices. Yeah, it's a, it's a long road. It is a long road, and but they're working, that's a, that's a big priority for them. And they've done a lot of as, as much gender-focused programming as possible. Um, I think that's a huge pillar of what they're doing. And is that, I'm curious if that was a theme across stations and in other countries that you visited as well. I just think about, you know, the role of women in many places is is subjugated. And, and often I feel like I'm reading community radio stories from around the world where there are groups who are trying to do more outreach to women in rural areas. So was that a theme that came up um, in other places besides this one station? Very much, yeah. Um, I mean, throughout India, for one, there's a lot of other rural, um, rural-based women-reported outlets doing amazing work. And I, was, I spent a large amount of time with them as well. But in almost every country I visit, visited, I feel like, you know, there were um, women community radio stations in Nepal and um, in Zimbabwe. Uh, the media is extremely male dominated and a lot of the, um, you know, even discussions about uh, major issues are male dominated. But I did have a chance to spend time with Amakosigazi, which is um, kind of an up and coming alternative outlet that is reported and it's entirely, you know, written by women. And um, yeah, no, I think everywhere I visited in Ecuador, there was there was a dedication to um, ensuring that women had a space in media and on on the air too. So you've been to so many places and it's kind of like, um, it, it boggles my mind and it's really exciting. So it's um, sort of hard to know where to begin, but I think we maybe haven't covered Zimbabwe that much on Radio Survivor. So I would love it if you could talk about community radio in Zimbabwe and what you saw there. Definitely, yeah. In Zimbabwe, it was really fascinating because I had not, and again, it was like Nepal, I was another place where I hadn't initially thought about going to during the fellowship. But while I was in India, in November 2017, the longtime president of Zimbabwe, Robert Mugabe, was removed from power in, um, you know, uh, a coup, basically. And um I started following that on Twitter and connected with journalists there and was really interested in kind of the media landscape. And as it turns out, community radio there 
um, community radios are not permitted to get licenses. And so they're still operating as community radio initiatives. And that since 2001, uh, you know, a large association of community radios have been, you know, fighting to get the government to recognize them and issue them licenses. But so how are they operating? Are they operating like pirate radio stations now? What's happening? Essentially, yeah, they're operating. um, A lot of them put their broadcasts online or, yeah, operate as pirate stations and um, distribute their programs on CDs throughout the community or... Hmm put them on combis, which are essentially like um, kind of vans that are converted into buses. And they'll distribute those to combi drivers, and then the programs will get played on public transit. Wow. Um, That's amazing. Unlicensed community radio. Unlicensed community radio, Patsaka Yami Yami. Yeah, and um, that's a major way that they um, circulate their programs. And the station that I spent a lot of time with there was in Kariba, um, which is a – smaller town on Lake Kariba in Zimbabwe and they're doing some really amazing work and have a wide a large number of volunteers from the community and also do a lot of programming in the several different languages in Zimbabwe but um it's it's a difficult time for a community radio there but they're very they've gotten really creative in terms of you know how to get their programs to listeners and you know continue to survive um, with limited funding and they host a lot of artists in their studios are people who need to do recordings and so that's part of the way that they um you know keep their radio station going um, music so have they always been unlicensed um or or was there a period of time where they they did have licenses and now they can't have licenses um, they have never been licensed to okay. my knowledge yeah um so they're still operating um yeah, without a without a license. And you were saying that they invite I'm, musicians into the studios. Yes, they do, and um, they frequently have musicians in to do recordings and um, other folks to hold discussions. Um, and um, but especially, they were especially active, I think, in the lead up to elections after. Uh, Mugabe was ousted in November 2017. Um, Patsaki Yami had a lot of kind of youth discussions and youth meetings in their radio stations where members of the community would come in and talk about what they, you know, hoped for in um, what kind of traits they wanted in the next leader of Zimbabwe and also in their local officials. And they just, the radio, the community radios made a huge effort to be a part of you know, sharing information about polling stations and voter rights and accessibility and candidates themselves leading up to the elections in July 2017. And Patsaki Yami, I mean, for example, one of the um, reporters there, a woman named Sungi, uh, her focus and one of her passions is covering um, communities with disabilities and um, individuals and kind of accessibility. And something she covered was how people from people with disabilities were really kind of struggling to actually vote at polls for a variety of reasons. And um, she herself also has a disability and did some really kind of amazing programming on how the Zimbabwean government could um, do a better job in allowing voters to participate. So it's um, it's super amazing um, efforts by community radios leading up to the elections in Zimbabwe in talking about accessibility and 
all of that. The, um, your, your story about how they distribute their programming on CDs and even play it on buses, to me, that also speaks to accessibility that, you know, if, if there are people who don't have radios or if they can't, you know, the station can't even be on the radio legally, that that's a way to get the message out there. So how, are these private private buses? Like, how does that all work if some of this programming is sort of subversive? How do you get that programming on a bus? <laughs> Yeah, I think um, I, I'm i not sure always about the kind of intricacies of how they, you know, exactly communicate with drivers. But I think a lot of it is just individuals from the station would approach Combi drivers and talk to them about and see if they were comfortable playing, you know, a CD with programming. I think it was mostly done on a case-by-case basis rather than like through the bus company um, or transit company. Mm-hmm. So I think it was kind of like on the sly. Yeah. <laughs> it, that's amazing. I never heard that before. And I, uh, you know, it's, it's fascinating. And that would be something interesting to explore is, you know, is there a lot of rogue radio being distributed to bus drivers? Right. Yeah. Oh, private, yeah. private CD, the, the CD underground of, of, um, non-governmental public transportation in Africa. Julia Thomas, you you just mentioned that it was a difficult time for community radio in Zimbabwe and you, you know, boy, the the end of an era with the rule of Robert Mugabe and the the the, the next phase of political life there and then community radio stations you were telling us um, are unlicensed, so they're operating in a in a legal gray area, but are they being targeted in any way by the powers that be in Zimbabwe? Um, they are, I think community radios are being um, targeted in some ways. Like one thing that was pretty interesting was um, Patsaka Yami Yami. Um, um, recent, I mean, they've been around for a few years, but some of the uh, reporters told me that if, you know, just the year before a station, a commercially licensed station called Yami Yami opened up um, just a few kilometers away and many thought that it was an effort kind of by the government to draw attention away from the community radio and, you know, draw listeners to the commercially um, licensed radio. And when I went to that radio, it was very interesting, a different feel. um, But also there was a photo of the recently, uh, the president-elect since Mugabe was ousted, um, Emerson Mnangagwa was hanging on the wall. and so it was really interesting to see that. Um, and so that is, I don't think that there's been so much aggression, but towards the media in general in Zimbabwe, just on January 19th, there actually was an entire an internet um, shutdown um, after some um, protesters um, were speaking out against the rising fuel prices there, The some government soldiers, um, there were a number, a lot of assaults on people and activists who were speaking out. And so the government ended up shutting down the internet. And so media across the board was wow. silenced. I missed wow. that news in the United States. It went right, right yeah. past the, all the, everything I pay attention to. I did not know that in Zimbabwe, um, what you said was about, about two or three weeks ago, um, the internet yeah. was shut off. Um, how long did this shut off the internet in Zimbabwe in, in this um, month, it was- last month, I mean? Last month, yeah, it was shut down for about six days. Okay. And um, wow. something that was really interesting was um, 
uh, people who had VPNs could intermittently get on the internet and share updates. And um, I was following a lot of that on Twitter and talking to, um, you know, friends and contacts I'd made there. But a lot of people were, you know, sharing uh, and saying how media and the rest of the world, you know, really weren't paying enough attention in that um, we really needed to train our focus and get the story about what was happening in Zimbabwe out there. And I think, I think that's a really important point that, um, and I, that I I was able to sort of see in action in some places was the importance of, in a lot of ways, regional like solidarities in media, but in general, just in across the globe, I think there's a lot of room for growth in building stronger connections between community media in different places. I think that can be so powerful and um, there's so much we can learn from each other. Yeah. Did you see examples of collaboration, you know, between stations in the places that you visited? Yeah, I did very much, especially in, um, in Nepal, actually. Um, I went to one conference in Kathmandu that brought together 18 different community radio journalists from different districts um, in uh, earthquake-impacted areas across the country. Um, In 2015, there was a really devastating earthquake in Nepal, and basically this conference was focused on building out a collective program between all these different radio stations on the localized impacts of the earthquake. And um, it was really powerful in that, um, you know, they were talking about the science of the earthquake and kind of the generalized issues around recovery, but different journalists shared the impact, the, you know, where their communities were at and ideas for, you know, how they could build out a collective program that could air across the country. And it was like super inspiring to see that. And then, you know, to see them develop a plan to, you know, individually go back to their communities and then shape this, program that could be shared across the country I thought that was a really good example of what you know that collaboration could look can look like between different radio stations yeah and that's something really on the minds of so many community radio stations around the world in dealing with disasters and Mm -hmm. I've definitely seen that in the United States in the aftermath of wildfires and floods and you know the increasing number of disasters that we that we see hitting our communities and and community radio stations can really play a big role in, yeah. in helping helping out. Oh, very much, yeah. And, you know, distributing information and kind of updates that um, mainstream media isn't, um, and just supplementing those with um, more people's voices completely. I agree, yeah. yeah especially when, when um, we're talking about radio stations that are staffed by people who live in the communities that are impacted and are still on the air in those communities as opposed to like the empty shell of um, the kinds of media we're used to now in the United States where, um, you know, especially in smaller uh, towns, there really isn't um, a local media landscape at all. Um, And so when there is, those stations become all the more valuable. And then, of course, radios, battery-powered when they are um, available still in the United States, um, are really a remarkable way to get information during an emergency when other things might have been Uh, taken offline the internet or other you know the wireless cell tower network Um, yeah like the resilience of radio is always amazing and yeah and um so yeah like i mean and one of the radio journalists who was at um this conference that i went to yeah she and her team had you know lived out um 
you know, for a couple of weeks in a tent and continued broadcasting in the immediate aftermath of the earthquake. Um, And I got to hear from different members of the team about in Nepal. Yes. And um, how they, you know, continue to cover things, even as like their own families and houses were deeply impacted by the disaster. I think that it's, yeah, it's always important to remember and kind of think about community radio as a a tool for that kind of recovery and community love. Well, that's the voice of Julia Thomas, freelance writer, joining us from Little Rock, Arkansas, who uh, traveled the world on a Thomas J. Watson fellowship from 2017 to 2018, visiting community radio stations in places such as Zimbabwe, India, Nepal, uh, South Africa, and Ecuador. And my name is Eric Klein. You are listening to Radio Survivor. We're also joined from San Francisco, California, by Radio Survivor's Jennifer Waits. Yeah, and, you know, let's hop around the globe again. I I was intrigued by an interview you did with a radio station in the Galapagos. And um, so you you did an interview in Spanish talking about your radio (laughs) travels in Ecuador. So maybe give us a glimpse into what you saw in Ecuador. Sure. Yeah. So um, that was at the end of my fellowship. Um, I was in Ecuador and I actually visited a I, I think probably about seven stations in the, across the country, but all with, within, you know, pretty different um, parts of the country. But in the Galapagos in particular, um, I visited a station that um, actually just celebrated its 45th anniversary. Wow. Um, yeah. They just, um, we were chatting online the other day and they told me, Oh, we're turning 45. So that was exciting. But um they, um, the Galapagos, media in the Galapagos in general in the past few years actually has changed a lot because of some new laws that the Ecuadorian government has passed that have kind of restricted how they're able to operate. So the community radios there are only permitted to um, broadcast um, news from certain publications um, in continental Ecuador. And then they have um, a daily program where different kind of local government officials um, or certain community members come in and speak about um, things that are going on, but um, they don't, they don't, they aren't able to do more reporting as they used to. So it's, um, they've, they've ex- they're experiencing more censorship and kind of restrictions on how they're able to operate. So a lot of what they produce now in the um, in this community radio station called Radio Santa Cruz, um, a lot of it is music now. Um, um, and Julia Thomas, yeah. do you know that's uh, that's a remarkable form of, of government censorship of community media? How do they how do they enforce that? Um, I think it's um, just there's a lot of close monitoring of the media in the Galapagos. In part, um, the folks there told me that, I mean, because the Galapagos is a tourist destination, um, there's a lot of money and kind of like tourist and government attention focused there. Um, I think it's enforced because the radio station knows if they, you know, you know, um, when started programming stuff that they're not supposed to, it would very quickly be noticed and that they would be shut down. I'm, so so what, what are they afraid of, like, like anti-government type programming? No, I, I, it's really, um, I think that some of it was, in, and I heard this from um, someone who used to operate a, one of really the only community-focused newspaper in the Galapagos, that there's, there was kind of an 
anti uh, Korea, who's the um, former president of Ecuador, sentiment. And so kind of fear of government criticism, but also just, I think, wanting more control over the airwaves and um, wanting sanctioned content that they know won't be controversial. That's remarkable. I'm I, my media activist hat wants to go into overdrive, sort of like organizing some kind of support for the community radio stations of the Galapagos. But I don't, yeah. you know, how does how does one do that? That speaks to again to your point earlier, Julia Thomas, about the ideas of there being more connections between community media around the globe and figuring out how to support one another on issues of government censorship and free speech and uh, obtaining licensing necessary to stay on the air and gosh knows what other issues are important yes i mean so many issues um within i felt like um yeah i mean with every place that i went to i mean community radio is um i think it's such a way to kind of um envision articulate and practice the kind of media we'd like to see become more of become more widespread and to express ideas and share voices um and but in so many ways community radios like they're these bastions of history and um yeah just they're very reflective and of the societies that they're in and I think they're really honest indicators of the wider kind of disparities and access to information that exists. Um, but they're also a place where it's like those first steps are being taken. And it's, it's really cool to like, think about all of that. Yeah. I love that you're seeing all these places through the lens of community media. And I think you're right that it's, it's such a crossroads for all of these dynamics and, and a great place to really understand what's going on in a particular country. Very much, yeah, um, completely. And it's, uh, it was a really, I feel like now whenever I go to um, a new place, I mean, especially in the U.S., it's like my, I immediately put back on that hat of, and, you know, I, I think through that lens of community media, I think it's um, a really interesting way to get to know a place. And also oftentimes by talking to community media makers, you're meeting some of the most um, like passionate, involved community members who have seen so much, who are so knowledgeable and connected. And I, I just, I always loved seeing and kind of oftentimes being really, I was really lucky to be welcomed into those spaces. And the culture around community radio is just beautiful, I think. Well, and, and fittingly, we're recording this interview with you just a couple days after World Radio Day, and the theme this year was Dialogue, Tolerance, and Peace. And I feel like a lot of what you're describing fits in perfectly with that theme. And I just wanted to see if you had maybe a couple thoughts on, on this year's World Radio Day theme and how that's reflective of what you saw in your travels. Very much, yeah. On that theme, I, I one of the folks, um, John Chirinda, who was the founder of Patsaka Yami Yami Community Radio in Zimbabwe, kind of made a post about um, you know this year's theme on Community Radio Day. They hosted an event in um, in Kariba, and a lot of people came out. There were different performances. Just it was kind of a community celebration. Yeah, I think that 
something that he said that really struck me was how, um, you know, that radio informs, radio transforms, and radio unites people. You know, it's it's the responsibility of radio to kind of get people to, you know, both enjoy life, <laughs> is how he put it, and also to condemn kind of hostility or oppression, um, but also, and then beyond that, and embracing in both of those things to love their communities. And I think I got to see that in a lot of different ways. Um, and there's, I mean, there's just so many, you know, possibilities for community radio and the capacities it has and its ability to create more dialogue. Um, and I think also, I mean, in, in Ecuador, something that I also saw that was, I thought really great was in terms of creating dialogue, a really good example of this was this station up in um, the mountains of Ecuador. It's called Radio Iluman. Um, it's broadcasted in 80% um, Quechua, as it's a majority of Quechua, which is one of Ecuador's um, most prominent indigenous groups. And something they do every day is bring in local kids who um, are trying to learn the Quechua language as Spanish is taught most widely in schools. And a lot of people do communicate in Spanish, but this radio station is really creating dialogue in um, the language by like on air teaching a Quechua language lesson every day and genuinely, you know, getting kids to talk about it and laugh and chat their way through learning the language, ensuring that, you know, they're meeting that 80% Quechua on air mark and, you know, 20% Spanish. And that station is super vibrant and thriving and you know super out in the community also across these villages um surrounding Iluman. that's exciting can you julia thomas can you talk more about that like this this idea of not just being a radio station with walls around you with walls around microphones but getting out into the community how do they accomplish this there in the mountains of ecuador yeah um i think this radio station has an amazing and um very um very open model for how it does things. So every morning there are two reporters who go out into the community. First, there's a, a 45 minute to hour long broadcast at um, 7, 10 in the morning. And from there, these two reporters split up their, the villages they're going to go to and they go out for the whole day and essentially talk to and try to get at least, I think, five three to five stories yeah. and they're they're carrying uh, microphones and, and recorders of some kind yes and they're carrying microphones and recorders and oftentimes they um they've started taking videos on their phones mm. and sharing those on facebook too in addition to the live broadcasts so they often i went along with um, one of the community radio reporters during this kind of um uh it's a Quechua festival, but it's um, the Incan celebration of the sun god called Inti Raimi. It's every year in June. And this radio, Radio Ilaman, for like the month, the whole month of June, essentially their coverage was centered around that. So 
I went around with him for a few days while, and we would just get on a bus and go out and talk to different community leaders, go to different talks. Um, and, um, just this reporter had so much energy and moving around to all these different places, talking to tons of different people and very, in a lot of places I'd seen, I feel like, um, sometimes programming, um, can become more contained to, um, you know, bringing guests into studios right. rather than, you know, of course, being out in the field. But this was a really good example of, you know, how the station was um, breaking that. And um, then uh, at the end of the day, after talking to all these people, you'd come back, build out programs, and then do um, a 7 p.m. broadcast again with five to seven stories. Um, wow. and, what, and what kind of stories <laughs> yeah. were these? It would range from, you know, some local, a local, you know, community meeting on um, an NGO, you know, project to increase access to um, increase um, and improve water access in a village. Um, or it would be on a celebration in a plaza surrounding Inti Raimi. And um, this um, reporter, Segundo, would, you know, talk to the mayor of Otavalo and the relevant plaza and different guests. And um, it would really range and alternate between like, but always community oriented things. Um, yeah. It wasn't political ever really. And just focused on a lot of community meetings and, um, you know, community spaces and things that were going on in the public sphere. So thinking about your entire trip, what surprised you about community media I'm not sure what your ingoing assumptions were, and I'm sure that your your mind was just sort of open tremendously by all your travels, but were there any particular surprises to you? Yeah, I think, I mean, it's been it's like so interesting talking about all of this with you. I feel like even like going through it now, like my mind is just like jumping around mm -hmm. and like a massive nostalgia trip. Um, and I feel very much like I'm still like absorbing and it's, I'm still in a mode of learning and being curious about community media in so many different ways. But I think I noticed generally a lot of similarities between a lot of the, um, like intentions and, you know, work being done by, you know, outlets and journalists in all these different places. A lot of them were facing, you know, different forms of oppression or lack of funding or lack of representation or, Gender, gender biases um, or shifting audiences. And they were all responding to those things and with a lot of the same strategies and yet kind of, they did differ. And so there was this general kind of resilience and also, yeah, just community, general community care and dedication. And it was something that I continue to think about and process, especially as a journalist and someone who's, um, you know, just kind of, I mean, starting my career and wanting to, you know, learn as much as I can and be a better journalist all the time. Um, but especially being a foreigner from the U.S. and traveling to these places, community media is, um, it's, it's, and it's something, one lesson that I've learned, I think, is that 
really the best way to be a community radio storyteller or community media storyteller is to be of and from and like completely dedicated to that place. And that there's so many stories that, um, you know, need to be articulated on community media, but really to understand it and to, um, to produce those kind of stories, you have to be, you have to be a part of that community. And, as someone who is like moving around so much, I kind of, every time I left a place as per the nature of the Watson, I felt a little bit like I wasn't like, of course, you know, even now we're talking about these things. I, I still have a limited, very limited understanding of a lot of these stations and their fabric and stories. But um, that community media is like, you know, in a, in a world where, you know, journalists and people, all of us are moving around so much. It's like, kind of a community radio is a rock and the people around it just continue to, you know, celebrate a place and show you, you know, all the, you know, all the complex sides of it. Um, which I, th- I think is one of the universal things I noticed. Yeah. Um, that's really well said. I think that that's all, you know, I, radio superpower is that it, it emanates from the place where it's broadcasting from and the people who are on the radio um, when it's working uh, healthy, when it's a healthy working environment, the people that are on the radio are from the places where their broadcasting come. And then, as you said, like the next step is getting the voices of people in those communities on the air. And it's, it's, uh, we live in a media landscape in the United States where it's not as if um, corporate media has some kind of uh, rule against local voices. And in fact, they sometimes stumble their way into doing great stories about local people telling local stories. But community media really has that um, as its guiding principle most places, and that's what makes it so strong, that that local voices on the air talking to other people in those places is, is, the, is radio superpower. And I think it's so, it's delightful to have you on today, Julia Thomas. Um, and, you know, as you said, you traveled the world, you, you skipped like a stone across the, the entire globe, <laughs> visiting all these community radio stations sort of as a, as a visitor, as an outsider, but seeing what these stations um, were offering their local communities. And here on Radio Survivor, we are, you know, we're on the air on a dozen or two dozen stations around the country uh, talking about community radio from a, from a global perspective, but it's it's so it's such a like interesting thing to just sort of dwell on uh, dreamily that after we're done talking about community radio from a global perspective, all of these stations then get to go back to their to their work of having what you described as the the people from these communities talking to other people from the communities. Yes, which is such a we need more of it, and um, it's such a simple but fundamentally rare and beautiful thing yeah it's just there's so much to be done there yeah thank you community radio stations (laughs) so if people want to learn more about your trip what's how can they do so um well i have a website um where i kept up a bit of a blog it's juliamthomas.net but i'm also in the midst of you know kind of figuring out how to present my research and um thoughts on community media and working through different ideas for that. And I do tweet quite a bit about 
you know, different articles I'm reading. On, I'm at Julia Thomas 317 on Twitter. Well, uh, listeners uh, to Radio Survivor can find links to your Twitter account as well as your website with the blog about your trip around the globe visiting community radio stations. Uh, on today's show notes, radiosurvivor.com, this is episode number 181 of the radio program and podcast. And what an episode. Uh, Jennifer Waits, thank you so much for, for your contribution to today's episode of Radio Survivor. Of course. And Julia Thomas, a freelance writer, Twitter Twitter user, and writer about community radio. Thank you so much for just a, just just a drop in the bucket again of of every of all the stories that you brought back. We'll have you on again very soon. Um, maybe we'll just have you on to tell like one story for the next hour instead of um, <laughs> trying to trying to tell all the stories of your travels I around know. the globe. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today on Radio Survivor. Yeah, thank you so much, Eric and Jennifer. It was a pleasure. Now, my sincerest thanks again to Julia Thomas for joining us today on Radio Survivor, and of course to Jennifer Waits for producing that episode, for really uh, putting in the work to get that episode on the air today. Radio Survivor is a listener-supported enterprise. You can learn more uh, on how to support the work at radiosurvivor.com slash support. And of course, links to Julia Thomas's website as well as Twitter account are up at the show notes today for Radio Survivor. This is episode number 181. And in case, like me, today's episode felt a little familiar, a little bit of the community radio deja vu, well, <laughs> back in November of 2016, Paul and I uh, spent episode number 71 speaking with Sylvia Thomas, who spent a year traveling the globe, visiting community radio stations from South America, Asia, and Africa. And what an amazing coincidence, and what a delightful way to uh, bridge the time from episode number 71 to episode 181. But thanks again today to Julia Thomas for, for all of the work. You know, we really... We spent about an hour speaking with Julia, and uh, there were as many ways to approach today's interview as there are community radio stations that Julia Thomas visited. And I have to say that here on the radio, I promise that we're going to at least uh, revisit some of those sometime soon with Julia. I know that Julia had so much more to share and especially after the interview was concluded, Julia reached out to us with just so many more details, so many ways that uh, she wanted to answer our questions in more details to provide more context for the listeners and about all these community radio stations that, that she visited on this fellowship. And what an incredible story. Radio Survivor, you're listening either on the radio or on the internet. It's a podcast. And if you missed anything or if you want to hear previous episodes, why don't you go ahead and subscribe in your favorite podcast catcher. My name is Eric Klein. On behalf of myself, Jennifer Waits, Paul Reismandel, and Matthew Lazar, the Radio Survivor team, I want to thank you all for listening, and we'll see you again next week.